0: Hello and welcome to Asia Perspectives from Economist Impact. I'm Jason Winsunis, part of the research team that brings you evidence-based insights to open debates, broaden perspectives, and catalyze progress. And the progress we'll be discussing in this episode is in the fast-moving space of digital and cryptocurrencies. Recently, the Chinese government effectively banned Bitcoin in the country. And to gain insight into how and why that's happening, as well as what it could mean for the rest of Asia and the world. I've asked Angie Lau, founder and CEO of Forecast News, to join us and give greater context to the moves. Forecast is a media platform dedicated to covering the digital currency and blockchain world. But before founding it, Angie was the lead anchor of Bloomberg TV's morning show, First Up with Angie Lau, covering Asia's investment scene. She's interviewed some of the biggest names in traditional finance, like BlackRock CEO Larry Fink and the extremely elusive Li Ka-shing. Her interview with him seems to be the only broadcast one in the past decade. Currently, Angie regularly talks to leading entrepreneurs in the new digital finance space, so we've brought her on to the podcast to tap into that knowledge and learn more about what's going on in Asia. Welcome to the podcast, Angie.
1: Jason, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Now, first, maybe give us a a quick background on what drew you to cryptocurrencies, because you've been covering this space for a few years now, and there has been a whole lot of change in that time. Maybe it was that disruption in the financial world itself that piqued your journalistic interest in the first place?
1: You know, I think we are a curious bunch, that is for sure. But certainly when I was anchoring the global story of finance, I started seeing signs of a alternative asset class. But the way that it was being covered, it's very, you know, almost joke like, you know, what is this? What kind of silly product, you know, and that was really the tone at the time. But of course, there was much more to the story. And I started paying attention then. There wasn't a lot of mainstream coverage around that except for that kind of narrative and tone. And I felt, at the time, that there was something much more there. And then 2017 came with the ICO craze. And we saw so many projects and so many protocols really go directly to market the initial coin offerings, if you will, and raise money circumventing traditional markets and raising billions of dollars for these projects. And this is when it really caught the excitement, concern, certainly, and frothiness and hype as to what this actually was. Then came the demise of the ICO market, and we saw in 2018 that it really melted down. There was a very infamous statistic that 98% of some of these projects were essentially duds. But in those ashes were born some really interesting protocols and projects, of which we are seeing really blossom over the past couple of years. I started Forecast, actually, in what many called crypto winter, when nobody believed in the space. Nobody really thought anything much of it, felt that it had its heyday and was going to go away. And I felt that there was much more to the story than cryptocurrency market moves itself. What I started seeing and what really interested me was the application of blockchain across industries. And I'm talking about insurance to food tracing, to supply chain, to, yes, even finance. Finance was definitely part of the big story that I think everybody covered. But what interested me about blockchain and crypto was essentially this emerging technology as a potential application in media. That was my interest when I took a closer look, what I was met with was really disheartening. And that's when I realized that beyond just even understanding blockchain, that there would come a time when more and more professionals would need to be in this space. And I felt that blockchain as a technology and its applications potentially in media was much more interesting than the market moves. And that's when I realized that other professionals adjacent to this space, senior executives, decision makers, mainstream decision makers, would also be eager to understand one day this space. And that's when we launched Forecast to simply serve a market that nobody was serving at the time because of various reasons. And fast forward, and a COVID-disrupted world that Basically, opened the eyes and ears of an entire generation to see the potential of this technology and its applications. Here we are.
0: Indeed. In fact, in one of the surveys that we've done during the year, the issue of COVID 19 and the desire to have less physical transactions has definitely been, at least in our surveys, one of the drivers for people wanting to adopt these digital currencies and cryptocurrencies and all the different ways of transacting. But the big news that I originally wanted to talk to you about is what just happened coming out of China and the government's ban, or is it even a ban, on Bitcoin. What is the actual ban, and then what are the immediate implications of that?
1: Yeah, the actual ban is pretty pervasive, and it started with the PBOC solidifying its stance on cryptocurrency activities. And as we know, China has been spearheading the race into CBDCs, the central bank-backed digital currency, so CBDC for short, also known as DCEP, Digital Currency Electronic Payment. But now, everybody, let's just call it what it is. It's an electronic r b It's an ECNY, whatever you want to call it. It's an electronic yuan. We know that China has been in this space for a while and has been accelerating in this space. This is the kind of coverage that you'll see on Forecast. And we've been covering this story pretty much since inception of Forecast, seeing the impact of that in this space. What we also know is, as longtime journalists in the region, Jason, I don't need to tell you that capital control is a huge issue for China, and maintaining that control is paramount. We know this through Myriad events that have happened over the past decade in China. And some of the levers in which China can lever up or down is really tied to capital controls. So now we fast forward to this ban, which essentially is more of a reminder, if you will, and a much more specific and clear reminder of a policy perspective that China had been sharing for a while now. So the industry had sensed that this was coming. But what China, in terms of policy, for those of us who have covered the space for a while, is that can be general in its suggestion and tone, and then wait to see how the market evolves. And then policy steps in when something that either needs to come in or something happened and it needs to assert authority. And we've seen this time and time again for various stories and various events that we've covered. And I think this is really no different. What this latest ban is, an all-round ban on cryptocurrency activities. And here's why it's actually quite significant. Because for A long time now, since China's inception into the space with its CBDC and with Xi Jinping's support of blockchain as one of the economic pillars of growth over the next five years in the five-year plan that in one of the remarks that he publicly made to CPCC members. And that's when it got really exciting to watch what was happening in China. There are a lot of developers, a lot of support of blockchain, a lot of smart people in this space that saw the opportunity and started building. Now what has evolved into that is a real clear distinction between blockchain initiatives of which there are support and Bitcoin and cryptocurrency activities of which it's increasingly less and less. And so when there is a all right ban on cryptocurrency activities, what you're seeing is some of the most entrenched and longtime players in cryptocurrency exchanges are suddenly left without policy support. Now they're illegal and they cannot serve a market that they had been serving. So essentially this Is another door that is slamming shut on the participatory nature and desire of mainland Chinese to invest or on ramp into cryptocurrency through cryptocurrency exchanges. They cannot do cryptocurrency activities in China.
0: So the ban is that you cannot trade, you cannot mine, but you are still able to own what you had. Is that right?
1: That's right. This is very important because Vitalik Buterin, very famously fluent in Mandarin, actually got support from Chinese investors in the early days of Ethereum in 2015, when Ethereum, pre the ICO stage, was really looking for support. And nobody knew who Vitalik was, but there was certainly an understanding of this blockchain protocol, Ethereum, that captured the imagination of a lot of Chinese talent, a lot of Chinese developers and supporters. And in fact, we had Wanxiang Blockchain, the CEO of Wanxiang, this is Feng Xiao, was also an early crypto adopter. He bought, according to my friends over at Decrypt, who did this reporting, he bought Half a million dollars worth of Ethereum in September 2015, when, and I checked, was worth around a buck 25 US. So, at a time when Ethereum could be bought for a dollar 25, that initial investment of half a million dollars is worth 1.75 billion dollars. This is just a drop in the pool of the kind of support that we have seen really over the past couple of years coming out of China. So there is a lot of crypto-rich pools of funds that exist in China. The issue is now, what does it mean for that in terms of cryptocurrency activity? Can it stay there? How can it be used? Can it be moved? Can it be used? And so those are the questions that are really outstanding at the moment, but the generalities of the PBOC edict that has support from a lot of agencies. It's too general to really understand the true nature of what that actually means for even those funds.
0: So do you have any insight as to if the banning of these cryptocurrencies within China being able to use them, is that maybe less about Being worried about alternative currencies or stores of values and maybe more about looking to minimize competition for China's own cryptocurrency or the ECNY is where you're going to call it?
1: That's a very good question. I mean, the answer is fairly clear. You can hold cryptocurrency as a store of value. That is recognized. Whether or not you can use it on a day-to-day purchase level, no, you cannot. That you cannot. It is not the kind of transactional fiat that El Salvador, for example, has now legalized. They see Bitcoin as a transactional digital currency. That is something that certainly China very specifically does not allow. And increasingly, a lot of countries are taking this stance. And to your point, they're working on their own digital currency, Of which we'll likely see the public introduction of it during Winter Olympic Games 2022. But we've been monitoring this story and seeing the pilot trials that have been running in the past year that it is going to be embedded into the financial fabric of Chinese transactions domestically. And so, yeah, there's certainly, I think, likely that perspective there, that from a regulatory point of view, to have it function as a fiat very much does challenge traditional norms. And as a state authority, China has the right to determine the fate of that domestically. What other countries are certainly seeing is that This is a parallel system that does challenge, but also complements and is working sometimes in concert with, and sometimes regulators are trying to keep up. So in terms of the kind of policy effort and energy that is excised as a result of this new parallel system. That is growing up and growing up fast. And I don't want to say drain because this is at the end of the day part of the same pie, but take away the kind of liquidity that would have probably more been traditionally reserved for bond markets or treasuries or equity markets. That this is not only an alternative asset class as a store of value, as of which we're seeing, but there is also a potential here where we are seeing these peer to peer transactions. This can happen in real time to the eighth decimal place. So microtransactions are very, very important. And it is disintermediating a lot of these third party businesses and the centralized, it is disintermediating centralized industries. But centralized industries can also include governments and agencies. So there is really an interesting relationship that I think happens from a geopolitical point of view and also an enterprise point of view.
0: So maybe we should back up a little bit here. It was like a year ago, I think, that we actually first talked about China's CBDC on the podcast. And we just published a report this spring called Digimentality. Shameless plug here for that, but can be downloaded at digitalcurrency.economist.com. But I'm just curious about how a central bank digital currency even works maybe you can give us a little bit of a quick primer on what a cbdc is and a little bit about how they work you know does china's even use a blockchain for example
1: the central bank backed digital currency is exactly how it sounds so this will function as a digital currency a digital rmb the characteristics and the features very similar to an rmb except I don't need to have a paper representation of what this actually is. And if you think about it, China's actually quite advanced in this anyway. I think we were joking before, I can't buy anything with the RMB. I try to give somebody physical paper money and I'm asked if I could pay with my WeChat. And that's certainly been the case for the past couple of years. And so now fast forward to this where the PBOC is working to really mainstream get the CBDC, get the ECNI, CNY ready for mainstream adoption. And so the pilot trials are super interesting. I mean, they have, quote unquote, a term that is well known in crypto. They've airdropped essentially a free ECNY in the style of a digital red envelope to lucky lottery winners. And they can open their digital red envelope and they can get their free digital RMB and they can use it. They can use it at the store. They can use it to board a bus. They can use it to purchase any myriad things. Increasingly, not only can you use it for purchases, You can get your salary in it. You can potentially pay your taxes with it. All of these things are actually being piloted and trialed out as we speak. Now, we also know that it's important to have the relationship with the central bank backing the digital currency for all of those reasons that we know that monetary policy exists. What's interesting is that with a digital currency, it can also have the characteristics and behave in a smart contract way. Same with Ethereum. Vitalik Buterin actually unleashed this incredible innovation that we're seeing in crypto because of the smart contract functionality, which means that money can behave in any way that you and I or peer-to-peer define it to be. If then, then what? If this, then that, right? If I do this, then this money will be unlocked and you get that. And so with the levers and the policies that the PBOC, or quite frankly, any central bank might want to elicit from its general population in times of Inflation in times of a fiat that is too strong on the global stage, in times of economic stimulus or desire for economic stimulus, all of these things can actually be baked into a central bank backed digital currency. This is the kind of experiment that I think we're all waiting to see because there is a potential to apply monetary policy. Onto those digital currencies. No one's done it yet because it's not official. PBOC, in fact, there are still trials going on, but the potential is there. And so this is the very interesting aspect of CBDCs. Now, China, as you know, will define it in its own way, but the kind of monetary behavior that it wants to elicit from its general population and from that pool of money can. Almost be immediately deployed in real time. So that is actually what makes this very interesting. And there's obviously a lot of discussion about that, a lot of concern, no doubt. But that's the kind of new characteristic of a digital currency that is powered by blockchain technology. Now, this is not a true crypto, decentralized cryptocurrency. This is not a truly decentralized blockchain. I just want to make that very important distinction. But it has the technology behind it, which makes it very interesting.
0: Now, besides China, are there more countries in Asia that are issuing or preparing to issue central bank digital currencies?
1: Yeah, we're seeing it play out in Hong Kong, in Thailand. There's talks in Japan, even as China was heating up its CBDC efforts, that they would like to explore it now. These are the kind of conversations, and and everybody is watching China closely, including the United States, of which we'll note that it is not in any moves or discussions about a federal bank-backed digital currency. We'll say that there are private efforts going on in the background in the U.S., notably the Digital Dollar Foundation that is advocating for some sort of digital US dollar in concert with the Federal Reserve. So these things are going on. But certainly across Asia, these conversations are ongoing. There are a number of countries that are also working on their own version of CBDC. And what is interesting is also that smart contract functionality. Because If these smart dollars or digital currencies can then talk to each other, it can create more seamless, more efficient, less costly trade agreements, trade relationships. And in fact, we are seeing a project triangle that's happening out of Hong Kong right now with other CBDC nation holders to take a look at cross-border. Transactions of which that can happen under a CBDC. So these things are really exciting to watch and report on in Asia because it is leading that race. There's no doubt about it. And the world is watching.
0: So, on that question of interoperability, have you talked to anybody that's thought about this space? Is that something that people are working on now or is that still really in the future?
1: Oh, no, no, it's happening it's happened, it is happening, and it will continue to intensify. So interoperability beyond even just on a government or nationwide level, but really this space, I mean, I think one of the most exciting things about blockchain is that there are so many protocols now that have different characteristics, different visions, different ways to engage in specific parts of enterprise that behave differently and once upon a time we might have thought okay there's so many different blockchain protocols that are coming out from cardano to ethereum to eos you name it bitcoin being the godfather of them all which one will rule them all for a long time that was a question that that was asked but i think the past few years have and increasingly now We've just recognized that there is not one to rule them all. And in fact, with the increasing ability of new platforms, new layer two protocols, if you will, layer one being the blockchain protocols like Ethereum and and Bitcoin and all of these principal protocols of which, you know, layer two sits on top of these layer one protocols that allow it to either be more seamless or more efficient, behave different ways that increasingly users want. But part of this is also interoperability. It's being built now. We are starting to see projects come online and we are aware of many of them. And what's exciting here is that in the same way that once upon a time, the internet did ask us, do you want to use the internet like this or do you want to use it like that? And neither speak to each other. Well, now all of these Different programming languages are increasingly able to speak to each other through different means. And so that's what's really super exciting is that there is a Rosetta Stone coming when it comes to the interoperability of these blockchain protocols. And that means that we'll be able to get the best functionality from one. And if we need to apply it, to another. There is an ease of use versus a cost of changing or shifting. So that's being built right now. And the platforms are also being built. And I'll note that China is actually spearheading a a very interesting platform called Blockchain Services Network that actually has onboarded some of the world's top protocols It's got a domestic version and it's got an international version. And those efforts actually are helping. And I think it's because there's just much more developer literacy and awareness of blockchain application on a national level and on a global scale. And so it is how to use blockchain easily to unleash the next level of efficiency across enterprise, and that's interoperability.
0: Now, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to jump topics to something else that's also been in the news a lot lately, which is non-fungible tokens, NFTs. I just wanted to get your sense, is is this a fad or is this something foundational?
1: I think it has a lot of characteristics that kind of signal that it's a fad. I would argue that it is much more foundational than that the flood of liquidity that you're seeing into the NFT space at the moment really should not be denied. There's just a lot of hunger for wealth generation in this space that a lot of people see promise too. I think that's really reflective of the kind of monetary policies that we've seen even pre-COVID, but certainly during COVID and post-COVID, the kind of stimulus dollars at play concerns about strength of currency, concerns about economic lag and slowdown, have really accelerated adoption and eagerness to explore this new asset class, which includes NFTs. So NFTs is not new. NFTs have been kicking around for a couple of years. Just take a look at one of Hong Kong's unicorns, Animoca Brands, and Yatsu, who has led that for a while and was talking about the application of NFTs even in its early days. And now we're seeing this really wide adoption. Whether that's a fad or not, it is a reflection of our time. So there's that. Secondly, I believe it foundational because beyond the first wave of application in art, in music, in sports memorabilia or sports videos, that has quickly evolved into what we're seeing now, which is displacing business relationships where legacy institutions once sat. What do I mean by that? Look at the music industry. With NFTs, all of a sudden, these musicians, these music creators, don't need to depend on the record labels or the wider music industry to invest in their artistry to get their music into the hands of their fans. In fact, NFTs can now allow them to have very intimate, direct relationships as they have predefined it in a way that a lot of content creators, once upon a time, had to depend on third parties. This is what is super exciting about the application of nft so we're starting to see that right now and we're starting to see that evolve and in fact the applications of it for content creators in media also makes it interesting for publishers digital publishers like ourselves at forecast have started exploring nfts and what that could mean for the future of journalism so i guess it's a poetic circle back to why i got into it in the first place which is What are the applications of this technology that can unleash incredible opportunities, not only for our industry, media, but for the greater world? I think NFT applications can be done as financial vehicles, starting to see associations to physical assets. And again, the regulatory rails have yet to be defined in the space. We will likely see more regulators showing up as they do when there is just a lot of liquidity and a lot of money frothing into a space. But this is what makes this industry enormously exciting to watch, observe, and cover. The implications go beyond enterprise. They absolutely bleed into nations, foreign policy, trade relationships. And at the end of the day, it's a technology that is creating new relationships that have far too long been defined by legacy institutions and agencies and governments even. So that tension is what exists at this moment. And NFTs is just the beginning.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much for that, Andrew. I think we've used up our time. So thank you for joining us.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for the great conversation, Jason.
0: And thank you all to the listeners for spending the time with us. As digital currencies reinvent the fundamentals of transactions, digital finance is a topic we'll be covering more and more at Economist Impact. You can download our commissioned Digit Mentality 2021 report about corporate and consumer acceptance of digital transactions and currencies at digitalcurrency.economist.com. And forecast will be doing its first ever summit on November 10, after the Hong Kong FinTech Week. Angie, what is that event called?
1: Yeah, it's called Bitcoin and Beyond. It's our first ever summit. And you can find all the information on forecast.news. That's www.forkast.news. It's going to be great. And I hope to have you hang out with us.
0: Indeed. The FinTech Week in Hong Kong, I believe, is going to be at the Convention Exhibition Center on November 3rd and 4th. And there's also an online component on the 5th. Angie, you're going to be a speaker there, and I think the aforementioned Larry Fink will be there as well.
1: That's right. And once upon a time, it was almost unfathomable to think that BlackRock was going to be in the crypto space, and here they are.
0: (laughs) So as always, if you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or any aspect of work from Economist Impact, you can email to AsiaPerspectives at economist.com. Thank you again from the editorial team. Please subscribe to Asia Perspectives to make sure you don't miss an episode.